The genius of Jesus. Does anybody, before we get right into it, I want to know, who knows what song that was that we just did? You can shout it out. Who was it? Killers. Man, I love that song. Do you know we've never been able to do that song? I was talking to Rachel, our music director around here, and she says we've never been able to really pull that song off. And do you know why? Because of that line, are we human or are we dancer? What's wrong with that? It is super grammatically incorrect, right? It's very grammatically incorrect. And so one of the things that I was talking to Cam, he's the one that actually sang that up here. I was talking to Cam about this song, and he wondered, he asked me, did you know why Brandon Flowers, the lead singer of The Killers, left that or made that quote the way it is? And I said, actually, Cam, that's going to be part of my opening message here, too. You see, that quote, it's funny how like God kind of like lines things up, and we were just on the same page even uh, in this whole thing. But that quote, are we human, are we dancer, Brandon Flowers, The Killers' lead singer, he wanted to agitate people. He wanted to make people mad because it was his song, and so he wanted to purposefully use incorrect grammar to get under people's skin because that quote, you know, and really what that Genesis came from was uh, there was a journalist in like the 1960s, Hunter S. Thompson. Anybody heard of Hunter S. Thompson before? I haven't. So I'm, I'm, I'm researching. I went down a rabbit hole on the internet. I normally do when it's time for me to do my messages because those rabbit holes bring lots of fun things to talk about. Uh, but Hunter S. Thompson did Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which was a really super popular movie and book. And so, um, but Hunter S. Thompson's quote was, are we raising a generation of dancers afraid to step one foot out of line. And what he was doing was he was, this was in the 60s, 70s, but he was looking at America, he was looking what's going on, and it was this culture of conformity. And he's kind of asking, you know, he wasn't asking this, but it made me think, you know, are we still stuck in that culture of conformity? Are, are we allowing for real genius and potential to exist? Are we cultivating that as humans here on this earth? I can remember reading, uh, it's probably a couple years ago, uh, just reading an article online, um, you know, about IQ scores. And it was this like graph that looked at, um, even though IQ scores have gone up decade over decade over decade, if you were to look at creativity scores, creativity scores have gone back down. And it almost, you know, like goes at the same trend line. As we've tried to, to raise the, the collective intelligence, we've actually killed creativity in the way that we do things, in the way we think about the world. And so we have to ask that question, where is there still room for individualized, unique, beautiful, and real genius? I wonder, have you ever thought of yourself as a genius? Have you ever had a hold my beer moment? <laughs> look, look, about, look, I'm going to do this, y'all. Hold my beer. I can remember one of those moments for me, uh, not, a, not the beer moment, that's a different day. Um, but in kindergarten, I can remember being a kindergartner. Is that how you say it? Kindergartner? I remember being a kindergartner, and I remember this day, they gave us a bunch of aluminum foil, and there was a fish tank. And so the assignment was to build a boat that could hold water, you know, that not sink and paper. And I can remember working on it. I can remember working on it. And my boat floated. And I can remember as a kindergartner feeling such a sense of achievement, and I was rewarded with what I imagine has to be a classroom um, reward staple going back for generations. You know what I got? A pencil. Did somebody say eraser? Yeah. You get hand in hand. If you're going to need one, you're going to need the other, right? But I got the pencil. I can just remember that sense. I've done it. I've mastered the world. We've had those moments, right? 
whatever it's in, you've had a moment where, where that sense of achievement was so rewarding, so fulfilling. It was, it was really more fulfilling as much as any drug could be because it filled a part of us that, that yearns and longs to be filled. We've had moments of achievements that make us feel like geniuses, but is there such a thing as real genius? And, and that's why we're getting into this book now. This series, we're calling it Real Genius, but it comes from this book, the concept, the genius of genius. We've got a link to it in our app under the overview to Amazon. If you want, you can get it, order it right now. One day shipping, it might be there when you get home. I don't know. So, uh, But we're using this, and we're kind of taking the concepts out of this. And so in his book, Erwin Raphael McManus, he gives us some definitions of what traits of real genius actually look like. That way we can have a working definition, right? We need something we can agree on, you know. So kind of one of the things he suggests about real genius is a real genius has four traits, a real genius is original, heretical, extremist, and transformative. They are original, they are heretical, they are extremist and transformative. And it made me think of some examples. When I think about original, and, and his definition of that is, is they see things from a different perspective. I think about the movie The Matrix. Who's seen The Matrix? Let me see. Man, I love that movie. I remember being in ninth grade, going to that movie, and if you haven't seen it yet... I'm sorry, you know, there, you can just Google it. There's this moment where, where Neo, the main character, has to decide whether he's going to take a pill and, and, and have the world kind of melt in front of him, where he steps into the real world from the fake world. He had no idea, but Neo, his whole life, was living a, a mirage. He was living in a shadow. He was really just plugged into a simulator. And the real world was a nasty, vengeful world that was run by machines. I love sci-fi. It's just part of who I am. you got to know that about me, okay? But that original idea actually wasn't from Matrix. It was actually from Plato. The philosopher Plato lived around 400 B.C., like 423 to 343, somewhere in there. Sorry, somebody can proof that for me. But Plato had this idea he called the allegory of the cave. The allegory of the cave. And what he suggested was that all of us, all humans, all of humanity, was really just like a bunch of prisoners chained to a wall in a cave. Who'd been there their whole life. They knew nothing different. They were just prisoners chained to a wall in a cave. And on the outside, the sun was shining in. And everything they thought was real was just a shadow. And he brought that idea to the world that what we're living in is just a shadow, and there's actually a more real reality behind what we can see, feel, and touch in the physical world. That's original. That's real genius. Genius is also heretical. It breaks with the status quo and challenges deeply held beliefs and values. Um, I thought about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., my small group that I have. Uh, uh, we've kind of been looking at Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Jail. And this is a free letter, and you should, I highly suggest you read it. Letter from Birmingham Jail. It's, it's in there where he pens a threat to justice anywhere. Or, how's it go? A threat to justice, injustice anywhere. There it is. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That's how it goes. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere but he wanted to break with the status quo. He wanted to, to break deeply held beliefs that black and white were not equal. Those beliefs were held so much 
in American culture. And we still are fighting against equality today through all race, creeds, and colors. Who's better than each other? That's what so many of our Twitter wars get into. Who's really better than each other? Dr. King went to his death to fight that status quo. I think of an extremist, a real genius who's extremist, is consumed in their purpose. This made me think of Winston Churchill. There was a movie he was in, uh, there was a movie about him called The Darkest Hour with Gary Oldman, which was amazing. And what it did is it really framed Winston Churchill as this guy who, was, who knew that the war had to be fought now. That people then didn't want to go to war. It was Great Britain. They didn't want to fight Hitler. They didn't want to enter the war. War was going to be costly. And he knew that it had to be now. And he was extreme in his views. He's, his famous quote, I've got it right here. I think you've probably heard this one before. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds, fight in the fields and in the streets. We will fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And don't you see that playing on right now? Man. Over there in Ukraine. Man, that's crazy to think about. How time, you know, history repeats itself, doesn't it? Real genius is also transformative. And what I mean when I say that, and what, what McManus says when he means when he says that too, is like, it marks your time. You can know that there's a time before, like time has changed. There's a before and there's an after. When things before were different, things after are different. And the genius I thought of here, um, he may not be super popular, but Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, because my life is marked very starkly because when there was a Facebook and when there wasn't a Facebook. And how much of our life like, is marked by social media influence and when it wasn't a thing. I can remember I got to go when I was in college up to Alaska for a summer. I lived in Alaska. I went on like a summer mission trip kind of thing. Uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, college ministry. Lived in Juneau for 13 weeks. And I can remember leaving, going up there, being isolated. You can't drive to Juneau. You have to take a ferry or fly in. It's very isolated. It's wonderful. But I remember doing that whole summer and then getting back to my college campus and everybody had this thing called Facebook. And back then, you had to sign up to your campus's Facebook. And I just think about how now it's on my phone and now how so much of the world is influenced by that. So even though maybe it's not popular, uh, maybe we don't like Facebook, maybe we don't like what it's done, maybe we do, maybe we love it. Maybe it's been the best thing that's happened to our lives since sliced bread. I don't know for you. But there's real genius there. You see, there's something about real genius that we find ourselves staring at. It attracts us. It fascinates us. But why? Why do we get caught up in the incredible stories of real people and real ideas that have changed and experienced our world? I think one reason that we are caught up in and why real genius matters to us, why real genius attracts us, is that we're looking for answers. We're looking for real practical answers. Answers like, what do I do to lose weight? How do I train a 13-week-old golden retriever puppy named Honey? This is entirely hypothetical. You wouldn't find these questions on my search history at all. <laughs> Who here in the past six months, six months has bought a book or listened to a podcast to learn something? You wanted to learn something. Do, do, who, what was it on? Can you share something? Will you care share with me? What did you try to learn? Plumbing. Plumbing. Man. That's one we could all know, right? What else? Just shout it. 
Gardening. I like that. I've gotten into bread making. There's a weird tangent for us today. <laughs> I just needed like to work with my hand. Like I like to fish. I'm a bit, I love to fish, but it's just not here. Not now. It's too cold, right? I don't get into ice fishing. So I needed something to do. I needed a hobby. And that's, that's one area where social media actually turned out to be pretty good because now I can follow on Instagram a bunch of people who do sourdough recipes. And I have a starter. Do you know what a starter is? Just, yeah, I got a starter. I named him Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof because it's this live thing and you feed it. I have to feed it like a pet. And I make bread now. I make bread and I have a golden retriever and that's what COVID did to me. So... So sometimes we look to real genius because we really need real answers to real practical questions. But sometimes we have more abstract questions that are a little harder to answer, like, why am I here? What significance do I have? Do I matter? Am I defective? Will I ever be fully known and loved? To get another reason that we could be looking um, for real genius in our lives is we're looking for a sense of belonging. Real genius tends to attract a following. Real genius tends to, to give a sense of belonging to the people who, who, who consent to that genius, who accept that genius into their lives and say, I'm willing to follow that genius. And then you find comrades, you find people who kind of think the same things or hurt in the same way, you say, okay. And you find other people that you can relate to. I think, though, at the most basic level, why we're searching for real genius in this world is because we're really looking for an identity. We're looking for, for something or someone to tell us who we really are so that we can have strength, meaning, and purpose, and direction in the world. Now, I'm, I'm about ready to bring up a quote. I'm not going to bring it up yet because I'm going to set it up, but um, I like to read this book. Um, it's this tiny little book, and again, you can find the link in our resources under week one, but it's this, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, The Path to Two Christian Joy, and I would cross that out. I wouldn't say just the path to Christian joy. I just think the path to joy, period. And this is written by Dr. Timothy Keller, and he's quoting a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, okay? Has anybody heard of Kierkegaard before? He's this philosopher from like 1840, 1850. And again, this is a rabbit hole. When you, if you want to come do this message, you see how many rabbit holes you go down trying to come up here and talk about things. <laughs> I even ordered a book from the library about it so I could read more of it. It's cool. But he, he was this philosopher. He lived in Copenhagen in like 1840, 1850. And his main, the, the, one of the main things he was trying to solve was how do you know you're a Christ follower when you're in a culture that calls itself Christian. When the surrounding culture identifies itself as, as, as Christian, how do you know in your heart of hearts and in your inner being that you know Jesus? And so he kind of thought it was his idea, kind of his idea was, I'm going to agitate the crap out of people. I'm going to agitate the crap out of people so that they just won't rely on their assumptions and they will look internally at what's going on in their life to really see what's in there. And so um, Timothy Keller is going to, and I'm going to go ahead and have him bring it up now, says this quote about our human ego. Because ego is a word that gets brought up around genius, right? Ego, genius. Ego is really just the sense of self. In Latin, ego means I, as in me. So ego really just means how I know I am me. And so... 
In his book, Sickness into Death, Siren Kierkegaard says this. He says, it is the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. Soren Kierkegaard says that the normal human ego is built on something besides God. It searches for something that will give it a sense of worth, a sense of specialness, and a sense of purpose, and builds itself on that. And of course, as we are often reminded, if you try to put anything in the middle of the place that was originally made for God, it is going to be too small. It is going to rattle around in there. What Keller is saying and what he's really talking about is what Kierkegaard is saying too, is that idea that there's something inside of us that's created to find worth and to find an identity in, in how we were created, that we were created by this infinitely loving, infinitely grace-filled, infinitely um, just compassionate God who wanted to relate to us. And so inside of us, we have a longing to be filled in an infinite way. But anytime we try to fill that empty space with anything other than God, it's just too small. It can't support our weight. And so it rattles around, and we're always in this, this constant mode of trying to fill ourselves up with things, with ideas, with people, with achievements. I turned 38 this past December. Now, some of you think that's incredibly old. Most, some of you think that's incredibly young. I, I, I tend to think more like the, the, the latter there, that 38 is still young. I think being a 38-year-old is I'm just now starting to be aware of my immaturity. <laughs> and I mean that to myself in the kindest way. Because what does immaturity really mean? It means not yet fully developed. Like, I say that without a sense of shame or guilt. I am immature. And I'm starting to see how immature I am. I'm starting to see how fragile my ego is and my sense of self, and how radically insecure I am as a human being. I wonder if you have wondered the same. Have you been afraid to admit that? Or do you sense it? Do you, do you sense, man, I am just radically insecure? I, I, when I get snubbed by other people, when I don't get credit for what I've done, I feel hurt. I feel ashamed when I mess up. That's all insecurity. And that, let's just call it what it is. Don't feel shame over it. Just admit it. You and I are incredibly fragile, and, and we seek something that will give us a sense of identity, a sense of security, a sense of stability and self-worth that which we were designed for. We're always looking for that. That's why we listen to pundits and social leaders and influencers and even religious institutions. That's why we show up here. We're looking for some kind of identity that will help us get through each day. We have looked inside ourselves and have found ourselves unsure, which puts us in a very vulnerable position to follow anyone that promises to have the answers we're looking for. So what would make Jesus different then? What makes Jesus different than any other genius out there? So that we're not caught up in a false following. You know, I'm going to explain why I think Jesus is a real genius, why I think he's the ultimate genius. If you're not at a spot where you really trust the Bible, I want you to know that that's okay. 
that I, I would love for you just to be honest with your skepticism about how the Bible was put together, who put it together, why it was put together. You can bring those doubts in here. We can talk about the, this thing and why it is and, and who made it and all. Like, we can have that. Like, we can have that skepticism. Skepticism is healthy. Kierkegaard encouraged some skepticism. He wanted you to look inside of yourself and say, why do I really believe the things I believe? Do I have anything to back it up with? So I'd love to encourage you to bring your skepticism on what this is and how it was put together. Bring it into this conversation. But do me and do yourself a favor also bring in a category to say maybe this is real. Maybe, maybe if God really did create the universe, maybe somehow he did supernaturally create this book. Maybe there's something supernatural. Bring both categories into it. Bring your skepticism to the table. Allow room for skepticism. Just bring another category with it. Bring another category so that you have balance in your inner world. You have balance in the way that you think. Because at some point, to believe this Jesus stuff, you're just going to have to say, okay, at some point, I, do I believe it or do I don't? So bring your skepticism to this conversation, but open up another category to say may, maybe it is supernaturally put together and therefore can meet the deepest desires I was created for because ultimately I'm a supernatural being. So what makes Jesus a genius worth following? We could look at his age 12 uh, spiritual genius in Luke um, 2, 41 through 52. Jesus and his family went on a trip to Jerusalem, the like holy of holy temple sites. It's where his religion was, and, and, and it's where God himself dwelt. And his whole family went there when they were 12, and they traveled in a big extended family. They traveled with your extended family, kind of on these pilgrimages, and he went back to the temple, and, and the family left. They left. It was like a home alone before home alone was around, like his family left, and they left him there in Jerusalem. And then they get there, and it's, oh my God, we left Jesus. And so um, they did that whole thing, and they went back, and they looked for Jesus, and they searched for him for three days in Jerusalem, and they found him in the temple. He says, didn't you know this is where I was going to be? And you read the scripture. It's, it's in the app um, under our engaging scripture. But just, you know, the, the temple scholars were astounded. Jesus said, didn't you know I'd be with my father? So we, we could look at that and say, well, he meets the category of a spiritual genius. We could look at how in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, he was an intellectual Jesus. Jesus took 613 laws and put them into one. This is what we, with the church, or what Christianity has uh, traditionally called the greatest commandment, where somebody goes, what is the greatest command? What's the greatest law? There's 613 laws. What's the greatest one out of all of them? And he says, well, to love the Lord God, your heart, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he combines 613 rules into just one single rule. We could say that Jesus was a physical genius. He healed all kinds of people. You know, you might think he's cheating because he's Jesus. He just says heal, but hey, he knows human anatomy as, bad as, as good as anybody else. I like to think of Jesus also as a social genius. We see how he could relate to anybody on the social ladder. He was invited to elite parties, but he also hung out with any of the, the outcast, the caste systems of the world to the point where they, he was declared a, a glutton and a drunkard was what he was called by the religious elite. Jesus was called a, a, drunken and a, a drunkard and a glutton because he hung out with the lowest of the caste systems. 
you can talk about that. You can see that in Mark 2, 17. Uh, Jesus was an intra- and interpersonal genius. The woman at the well, he knew this woman, this woman who had had five husbands and wasn't even staying with her husband that was currently with, and he knew everything about her. And she said that. She says, man, you knew everything about me. And then she became one of the, uh, an evangelist, this great you know, um, storyteller about what he had done for her. You could also look at Jesus as a political genius. He navigated Roman and Jewish culture. You've got to look at where he was at culturally and historically in that time and place. They were in Israel, but there was Roman occupation. And you go and you can read uh, John chapter 18 and 19 and look at how he was tried by a Roman governor called Pontius Pilate and how he navigated, well, what is truth and what's this? To the point where Pontius Pilate couldn't even find him guilty. See, Jesus was original, if we want to talk about our earlier criteria. He was original. He was the only person to successfully live in an unviolated relationship with God. The only person to ever live a complete life not offending God. He was heretical. He taught a people that was most important was mercy, not religious rigidness. What I desire is mercy, not sacrifices, he says. He was extremist to the point that he was crucified on a cross, and he was transformative. Our entire history is marked from the time he entered this earth as a child. It's how we date our calendars, at least in the Western cultures. But not even all of that is what makes Jesus the ultimate Jesus. Even if you want to look at all that, I don't think it's any of that that makes Jesus the ultimate genius worth following. What makes Jesus the ultimate genius is that his genius is transferable. His genius is not exclusive. His genius is accessible. I mean, think about what, think about it like this. Could you do what Mozart did, given enough time? (laughs) Like, could you just sit down, and if you spent enough hours, could you play at that level? Or uh, could you throw a pass like Patrick Mahomes? Could you do some of the, make some of the same throws, or, or if there's a baseball season, like maybe one of the pitchers, could you hit it out of the park? Just given enough time, talents, could you do some of the things these geniuses did if you just spent enough time with them? Chances are it's so, so, so minuscule and unlikely. They're impossible. But with Jesus, Jesus said you and I, could have his genius. He made his genius transferable. And I just want to point to this verse here in John 12, 14. Oh, 14, 12. John 14, 12. Jesus says this. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works, because I am going to be with the Father. Do you believe you can do greater works than Jesus? Isn't that crazy to think about? He's telling his disciples this, but, but it's meant for us too. Jesus says you, and you, and you, and you, and you, all of us, actually are going to have the potential and capacity to do greater works than Jesus himself did. Even if you don't believe that, he did. And, and I think he proved it. Because that's why we're sitting here today. is because he 
had a small band of followers who were persecuted at the time, hunted down, yet what went from 12 to 20 to 200 to 500 multiplied itself across time, history, and space. And we get to sit here today talking about whether or not Jesus is a genius or not. Jesus always meant for his power, his genius, to be transferable, which makes him the greatest genius of all time. And that's great and all, but how do we do that, Brian? How are you actually going to receive and access the genius of Jesus? And that's why we're going to take the next, you know, this is an eight-week thing. We're going to take the next, after this week, next seven weeks to unpack some of his specific geniuses, what it means to be a new human. And we're going to talk about that too. Because we're going to talk about empathy and compassion and grace and beauty and truth and goodness. And how Jesus was all of those things perfectly and wants us to have all those things in our lives. But I think if we're going to get there, the first thing we have to do is we have to understand that the power of Jesus' genius is received, not achieved. And we can look at the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, 10 to kind of get at that a little bit. So I'm going to read this to you. It's Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. And Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So when I read that, I hear echoes of Jesus. I hear Paul saying that, that God has had this plan. This plan involves being in Jesus. Being created anew. So that we can do really good things in this world. We can participate in really cool, awesome, compassionate, merciful, life-transforming things. But we have to understand that that power that coursed through Jesus' veins and that can course through our veins too, it's not achieved, it's received. What Paul is really trying to say in some of this is, is he talks about it. He says, you can't take credit from this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. You and I, we are boasting machines. If you want to think about it like that. Our hearts run off of boast. To boast means to, to be puffed up. And it goes back to that rattling can analogy. I mean, you and I, we are always going... We're always going to look for something to fill us up. And maybe the thing that's getting in between us and Jesus isn't sin or failure or brokenness. Maybe it's how we rely, rely on our achievements more than we rely on anything else to make us feel good about ourselves. You and I, we primarily rely on our achievements to save us. But they can't. It goes back to that whole identity thing. You and I rely on achievements. We want to know that we're good at certain things. I think this happens when we're, when we're young, right? Think about me and the pencil, right? Me and the pencil. I wanted to prove how good I was at building an aluminum foil boat so I could add that to my resume, right? <laughs> my little grade school resume. And that made me feel good. And what's that going to do? It's going to release dopamine. It's going to actually have a physiological reaction inside of myself. 
where I'm going to want to chase that feeling. I'm going to want to feel good again, and so I'm going to learn how to be an achiever in this world. And I mean, I heard this term uh, this past week. I was reading an article by the New York Times, and it was about Yale's happiness professor. I don't know if you saw this headline or not. It's worth the read, but Yale's happiness professor is taking a leave of aptness because of her own burnout, and if she doesn't have hope, do we? But in there, she talks about how we've turned into a culture, uh, she called it, there was this word, uh, it was a, an achievement hustle culture. We're in a hustle achievement culture. Just hustle enough. Just work hard enough. And that's how you'll achieve. And that's going to make us feel good, right? Until we don't. Because we, we, we have these ideals. Again, I think it has to do with looking at our identities. We want to know we are a good husband. We want to know we are a good wife. We want to know we are a good um, spouse, son, daughter, mother, father. We want to be a good employee, a good worker, a good friend. And that's what we try and fill ourselves up with. That's what we try and get our security from. And then what happens though, right? That whole broken human thing kicks in and we fail. And we realize we're not a good husband. We're not a good wife. We're not a good father. We're not a good mother. We really suck at things. And when that happens, you kind of go one of two directions. You either just go into this uh, downward despair cycle. You just plummet, and you get stuck in self-pity. Or you just become manic, and you try and achieve more and more and more to make up for your loss. And you end up in burnout. If we can start to learn how to stop relying on our own achievements for our sense of self-worth and start relying on Jesus' achievements for our worth, we step out of being in self and we start stepping into being in Christ. The Apostle Paul talks about that a lot. We don't have a lot of time to go into all that today, but it's, it's, it's so interesting because he says this. Uh, I'm going to have him go ahead and put this up. Uh, Diana, if you would please, that's your cue. We have Ephesians 4. Paul talks about this in, uh, in Ephesians 2, the being anew in Christ. This is what he also says in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. Paul says, Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. And when he's talking about lust there, he's not necessarily talking specifically about sexual desire. He's just, and that's the word we associate it with most, he's talking just about like, does, like natural desire, just that whole idea. You could also say that verse in the way of throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by deceitful desires. Our lives are corrupted by deceitful desires. Deceitful even to us because of our own blindness. Like sometimes we just don't even know that we're going on the wrong path, right? And so we have desires that we think are going to make us happy, and they just won't. If you go read that article by, about the happiness professor from Yale, she talks about why do so many of us fail at becoming happy. She says, we don't really understand what's going to bring us happiness. She says, we are actually really, really bad at knowing what makes us happy. Like, if we're going to pursue happiness, we think after a long day at work and after we're tired, we're going to go binge on Netflix. And we know that's not going to make us happy. We have the scientific evidence to show us that binging on Netflix at night will not make us happier. Our intuitions are wrong. And that's what Paul's saying, too. We are corrupted by lust and deception. We are corrupted by deceitful desires, desires that we aren't even aware of. 
But he's saying instead, instead of living in that life where you're not even aware of the deceitful desires that are sabotaging your life, instead, let the Holy Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes, put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. See, you and I are not righteous and holy. And that's part of what maybe puts a barrier between us and religion. We don't like to be told that. We don't like to face that because that brings a lot of shame and guilt. And we think about how our political or our religious institutions have just really kept a hard hand on people, making them feel shameful and guilty. And there's been a lot of wrong done in the name of right. But just that idea of, of what if the most wrong thing going on in us is in our looks, is in our job, is in our marriage. The most wrong thing happening inside of us is a broken relationship with our Father in heaven. And what if we don't have the ability to achieve enough to make us feel good enough about ourselves or our relationship with God? And so there's a way to live. This is what Paul's kind of talking about in these two verses. He's saying there's a way to live. You can live in yourself or you can live in Jesus. You can live relying on your own sense of self-worth, your own achievements, your, your ability to be a good whatever. You can live in that and let that be the thing that makes you feel most good about yourself and most worthy. You can be in that or you can be in Jesus. You can be in his achievements. So you can suck. You can fail. You can be horrible at a lot of things. And it won't touch your sense of identity and self-worth. Because your worth and your identity is no longer based on what you have done and what you have achieved, but what on Jesus has done and what Jesus achieved through the cross. That's how his genius becomes your genius, is when you stop living in your own stuff and start living in what he did. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Jonah 2.8. This isn't a series about Jonah, but I'm gonna, I, gotta, I gotta sum it up a little bit here. Jonah was this guy who I think, or I, I know he was me. He relied on his own sense of achievement. He was pretty good at what he did, or at least he thought he was, was but when God wanted him to do something, he just really didn't want to do it. And so he ran. And when it was at the, in the belly of a fish, he has this moment of, of turning back to God. And he says, those, and he's just kind of proclaiming this about himself. He says this about himself, um, but, but I know it's true for me. I bet it's true for you too. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So you and I, were so used to clinging to worthless idols, that idea of we're so used to clinging to our own achievements in life, it's hard to let go of them. It's like that analogy of, I think I've heard it said before, you know, it's like, it's like you leave out a jar of cookies and a raccoon goes in and he puts his hand in the jar and he, and he grabs them, but he can't get his fist back out because he's not willing to let go and that's how you can trap him. There's the same thing kind of going on spiritually with us. So our hearts aren't open to receive what Jesus did for us because we're just so attached to our own sense of self-worth, our own sense of our own goodness, and we live these lives trying to prove to ourselves and others that we are worth being loved. Because we're trying to prove that, our hearts are closed off and not able to receive the love of Jesus into our life. 
If we cling to our own achievements for a sense of self-worth, value, and security, we just won't be able to receive a new life in Jesus, and we won't be able to become the kinds of new humans that he died to create. Would you all pray with me, please? Father, we're just thankful um, that you love us no matter what. I just pray for myself and for everybody here today that we could learn that your love for us is not based on any kind of achievement at all. That, that the source of our significance, the source of our self-worth, the source of our self-image, none of that's supposed to come from, from our works and our efforts. All of that, we were designed for all of that to come from you, and we can find all of that in Jesus. So I pray just for, for all of us here today that maybe we could leave here a little freer, a little more grace-filled, a little more open to letting go, to surrendering, to not thinking our sense of self and worth and value come from us, but they come from you. It's your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.